Coach Brew, as your business manager, I'm telling you, we really need a professional voiceover for your podcast intro. You're not my business manager. And I told you, I don't need an intro. Yes, I am. And look, if you want to be taken seriously, you need a professional to introduce the show and you need some theme music. That's what all the other podcasts out there do. Why the hell would I want to sound the same as everyone else? The same boring background music with a scripted voiceover read by some clown who just graduated from broadcasting school and probably calls his mom's basement a recording studio. Gee, that sounds real original. People don't want original. They want familiar. They want it to sound like other podcasts they listen to. Look, I've got someone coming over to meet with you. She'll be great for your audience. Pardon me, are you Mr. Brubaker? Uh-huh. I'm told you're in the market for some voice talent. I'm so pleased to meet you. Well, I wouldn't say I'm in the market for voiceover talent, but it's nice to meet you. What's your name? Oh, how rude of me. My name is Keeley. Do you have a script for me to read? No, I don't need a show intro. How will you excite your audience? Well, I've been told I have a face for radio, so there's that. If they just know what the podcast is about, that should excite them, no? They still might need some warming up. You have any ideas? Oh, maybe something like this? You're listening to The Coach Brew Show, where we turn potential into performance. Now be a good boy and repeat that. Yeah, what she said. Thank you, Keely. Um, you're listening to Coach Brew Podcast, where we turn potential into performance. And I am taking the show on the road today. It's Sunday. What's today's date, Josh? It's uh, the 16th, I believe. 17th. 17th. Yeah. Uh, it's been a blur. I've been here since Wednesday. I'm kind of like Cato Kalin living in O.J. Simpson's Brentwood Estate here with uh, my special guest, Josh Nam. JoshNomGolf.com, shout out, um, who is one of the top 25 professional golf instructors in America. Is that correct? Did I did I butcher your bio, or is that correct? That's close enough. Close enough. Whatever you want to say. So we are at his uh, palatial estate in Lawrence, Kansas, and um, we're gonna, we, we got on an interesting subject slash debate rabbit hole in the car on our way to Kansas City to have barbecue because that's what you do when you're here. I've learned that every single day. And it was about the rules of golf. And now follow me with with this, entrepreneurs, leaders, um, guardians of the galaxy who listen to this. This relates directly to you and your business because it's a unique sport. This is something I think is a metaphor for business that I wanted to talk to the world's foremost authority about. And he's like smirking, thinking I'm like his hype guy or I'm like making fun of him. I'm actually not because he's worked for directly for Hank Haney, who was Tiger Woods swing coach at the International Junior Golf Academy in Hilton Head for a number of years. So great experience, great mentor. Uh, he was a college golf athlete. Are you guys athletes? Do you call yourselves athletes? Yeah, we do. Nobody else does, but we do, for sure. Uh, and he's also a collegiate golf assistant and head coach for a number of years at a high level. It was very successful. 
basically, he's kind of got the Midas touch when it comes to golf and business. You know, from the coaching instruction standpoint and then building a business from scratch in multiple locations. So when I say the world's foremost authority about this subject, I'm not kidding. I'm not exaggerating. It is not um, hyperbole or as the millennials might call it. It's not that that uh, hyperbole. So we've got Josh Nam with us and the question that we kind of touched on in the car that we're going to expand on here is it's kind of golf as a metaphor for business. And one of the, if you could call it the romance of the game, I suppose, Josh, is the fact that um, any average schmo or Joe can go on the same exact course with the same exact equipment, clubs, ball, all the gear, as the world's elite professionals and play the game. And that's basically, in my mind at least, business as, as a metaphor for business. It's the business world. You look at every great thing that's ever been created, it's a pretty level playing field, and it's just the sweat equity you're willing to put in. So uh, if you could kind of, A, give us a little bit of your belief on why that is so profound because you're a very profound man. There's there's two parts that we talked about before when it comes to golf, right? Golf, there's other, maybe a couple others, bowling, if you call that a sport. But golf is the one sport where you're not directly competing against somebody, right? So every other sport you think of, you know, baseball, basketball, tennis, hockey, you've got an opponent right there. And their actions dictate your actions or reactions. Where golf Table is, tennis. Um, table tennis. Cornhole. Cornhole. Well, yeah. I'd have to think about the cornhole. Yeah, yeah. Because they Cause you're going back and forth head yeah. to head. Yeah. yeah. So golf, you're obviously competing against people. Darts. Actually, I think darts is more like golf if you think of it that way. Don't you compete like against well, you do, an opponent? But their moves don't necessarily dictate your moves. How's that? Okay. So, as we get sidetracked this quickly, in golf, you're... You're competing against a bunch of people, but what they do doesn't necessarily dictate what you do, right? Um, a guy can throw a fastball by me, right? Or he can hit a three-pointer with me guarding it. In golf, it's just you. And it's kind of like entrepreneurship, right? At the it, end of the day. You, you against the course. It's you yeah. against the course. Um, the decisions that you make and the work you put into it will directly affect you. And there is no opponent that is bigger, stronger, faster that can keep you down. And the other thing like we had talked earlier about, is golf is the one sport you can go play Pebble Beach where they had the U.S. Open this past year. You can play with Gary Woodland's clubs, the same golf ball, the same tees. You and I can't go play Wimbledon. Shout out to Gary Woodland, who is a Lawrence native from KU. Um, You see how we did that? But you can play Pebble Beach, and you can play from the same set of tees with his equipment. You can say, Gary beat me by this much each day. You can't go hit a ball at Yankee Stadium off Mariano Rivera. I mean, you know, maybe if you had a couple billion dollars, you could pay. But you can't just go out and do that where you can in golf. And that's where golf is a lot like business and entrepreneurship. Um, Not everyone's on the exact same playing field, but you have an idea. You think it can be successful. You have a roadmap that can get you there. Everyone does. And really, the only obstacle at the end of the day is yourself. 
right? It's yourself. It's very true. And I think what, what I find fascinating is most people, and I was kidding about cornhole and those other activities, but ESPN televises that. So it, it's apparently technically a sport. What I think is so interesting and why people might be confused by what do you mean you're not competing against someone in golf? You got a scorecard and there are other people in the course. That's the media hype machine. You know, like the most recent example, we have rivalries in golf. Really? Well, Tiger versus Phil or, you know, whoever versus whoever. And that's not really a rivalry. Yeah, you might be paired up with somebody, but are you really competing against them? Hole versus, you know, hole after hole after hole? Not really, right? Yeah, I mean, in golf, nobody can directly influence what you do, right? Where baseball, guy beats you, you beat him, right? He throws a pitch, you either hit it or you don't. Who's better that day? Well, in golf, it's just you. It really is. It's cliche, but it's you and the course and how many shots it takes you. And you do it the best you can, and at the end, you add it all up and see who wins. And every course is a little different, just like every market, every you know industry is a little different in business. The example I like to give is, and, and this is kind of where it's a very level playing field. Golf, you know, you start out with a blank slate. That scorecard, you're competing against you. And the course conditions, best result you can get. And then the next day you're competing against you yesterday versus you today, which is business and entrepreneurship in a nutshell. But the example I'd love to give is you look at, like, let's uh, take a look at any great company. Since you're a sports legend, uh, we'll stick with sports. I'll let you choose. You ready? Nike or Under Armour? Let's start with Under Armour. Perfect. So, and I think this is just a wonderful story of creating something from nothing, which is entrepreneurship. You're literally creating something from nothing every single time that you have an idea, start a business, execute anything. Kevin Plank was a young college student at the University of Maryland. He's now the CEO. Well, he just stepped down as CEO. He's becoming like the executive whatever, executive director, founder, what executive board member of Under Armour. But he started Under Armour literally with nothing but credit card debt. And if you're a former college student or a current college student listening to this, you probably remember those credit card companies that would have like a kiosk set up in student union and you could apply for a credit card. That's back when if you had a pulse and a heartbeat, you could get credit, you know. But he applied for a couple credit cards, maxed them out to create this, you know, dry wicking nylon material that he turned into a T-shirt. Sold them, you know, gave some of his teammates, he was a college football player at Maryland, gave some of his teammates the shirts to performance test and sold them to other people out of the trunk of his car. Went to different events, the trunk of his car turned into the trunk of his car and a couple of his buddies, a couple of his former teammates, a couple of lacrosse players, like Kip Folks comes to mind from Maryland. I think he's the vice president Under Armour now. But it was something from nothing. And there's nothing that would have stopped you, whoever you are listening right now, me, Josh, anyone from doing that same thing. That's you versus the course conditions. That's you today versus you yesterday. And... It's interesting timing that he just stepped down after building that thing into just a multi-billion dollar empire. It's worth like, what, eight billion bucks from the trunk of his car. So like whatever excuses you're making, 
with your business as you're listening to this or whatever you're saying is stopping you from starting something, think about that. And and the thing that's never talked about, right, when you go through the uh, Wikipedia of life, right, you you, you Wikipedia him. That, that great American scholar Wikipedia. Exactly, or, or Phil Knight or whoever. Is, is like golf. Nobody has ever played a perfect round of golf. You always have struggles. However good you play, you can always go back and say, what if I should have? And that's life. And that's happened to him. That's happened to everybody. And we don't see the struggles, but there are. But the thing that doesn't change is they don't quit. They don't give up. They don't try to radically alter what they're doing. They believe in what they have. And then they keep moving forward. And, and like life, it's not just a straight uphill climb. He didn't make $8 billion in six months. You know, this happened when? Mid-90s? Is that when this started? Funny story. And I'm glad you brought that up. Great question. It wasn't really a question. But I got a phone call when I was coaching uh, college lacrosse on Long Island. Not in Long Island. On Long Island. You're not in an island. You're on an island. So I got a phone call from their uh, – Well, he's now the vice president. He was a business partner in fledgling Under Armour back in 1997. And it was from Kip Folks. And most people would say that, or think, right, that Under Armour started, when, mid-2000? Yeah. But they started long before that. Nobody had heard of them. Yeah. They had to grow. I I hadn't heard of them, and he wanted to send me a a sample T-shirt to try out, see if I wanted to order them for my team. I'm like, sure, send it over. Tell me a little bit about it. What you know, t-shirts a t-shirt, man. You know, the cotton, they're gray, they all look the same. Like, what's the cheapest price I can get on a t-shirt with one color screen printing? It was, you know, pretty pretty much every coach's MO at that time. And he said, Well, it's this dry wicking fabric where it doesn't get heavy, it's made of nylon, it's skin tight. That's where he lost me. I'm okay, secret time, self-disclosure. I'm pretty claustrophobic. I don't like tight clothing. I don't like confined spaces. I get locked, uh, stuck in an elevator on the 13th floor of an embassy suites in Persephone, New Jersey, uh, when I was in college and for an hour and a half. So that sort of traumatized me. I don't wear tight clothing for that reason and probably for a host of others. But anyway, I'm like, no. Form-fitting tight shirt? Uh-uh. And then he said they're only $25. And I'm like, whoa, like you can send me the sample. I'll give it to somebody else. I'm not going to try it. And I'm not going to order them. And he said, we're looking for uh, a, quote, sales associate on Long Island. If that would interest you, I know your background, that would be great. I'm like, no one in their freaking right mind is going to buy a nylon, much less, you know, a couple dozen for their team, nylon form-fitting T-shirt, T-shirt for 25 bucks. I look at that and I think about that and I'm like, what if I had said yes and I had an open mind? I could have gotten in on the ground floor. I mean, that might have been like buying stock in Apple back in the 80s, Right. How many times do we all do that, right? You're sitting around with Mrs. Coach Brew, and you say, you know, if we would have put $1,000 into Apple in 1995, what would it be worth? You know, I mean, but that's what life's littered with is what ifs. What if I would have? You know, it's easy after it's happened to say, why didn't I think of that? It's a lot harder when nobody else has done it yet. Yes, that's my favorite cautionary 
tale from one of my favorite cautionary tales from my life. Like I could have gotten involved, you know, early adopter. But that's the thing too, is like there's a very small percentage of early adopters anything, whether it's an app, a expensive tight t-shirt, new golf club, new golf technology is always coming out. There's just a very limited audience for all of that. And it's about finding the right people. Uh, one of the areas, Josh, um, that I wanted to delve into is how golf isn't a metaphor for business or doesn't parallel perfectly with business. But first, I almost forgot. First, a word from one of our sponsors. Are you sick and tired of the same old department store underwear? It shrinks. It's uncomfortable. You know, the material, the cotton material kind of pills up. Well, there's a better alternative. And think about how much time in your life you spend wearing underwear if you're civilized. There's a better alternative. It's called My Underwear. Are you familiar with My Underwear, Josh? I'm not. Never heard of it. Yeah, neither am I, and we don't do commercials on our podcasts. So um, every now and then, just to just to keep you engaged, I shift gears like that. Yeah, what it? What's your pet peeve with commercials? Because there's a reason I do that. I'm like basically poking the bear and making fun of all these podcasters and radio shows that feel the need to try and monetize meal delivery kits, underwear, and crap like. Affiliate programs for a podcast. Like, you, how much money are you really making doing that? You're wasting people's time. What's your pet peeve with that? Well, I've got a couple, right? One, it's wasting your oh. time. Yeah. Uh, two, I don't believe that the guy endorsing it has ever used it or no. cares about it. Right? You know, you, and you can almost hear it in them. Well, I love my new pair of underwear. Try this. I mean, it's pause, pause while the cue card gets flipped to the next page. Yeah. I have a couple of podcaster friends who endorse like underwear and toothbrushes and stuff. I know really well. One, one dude, I know for a fact, doesn't even wear underwear, much less that brand underwear. You know? And anyway, yeah, it's just disingenuous, which is why we don't do it here in uh, Brew Vegas. What happens here stays here. So uh, as I digress, back to the subject at hand. Um, here is how business and golf do not mirror one another. If you look at how golfers police themselves, is that the right word? Yep. You look at the rules of golf and how golfers police themselves. There's no umpire calling balls and strikes in golf. There's no uh, referee calling holding. You know, the SEC isn't regulating your behavior from stroke to stroke. It's an honor system. And golfers hold that integrity of the honor system and their personal accountability at the highest level, really above all else, which you clearly, Enron, uh, Bernie Madoff, you clearly don't see in business. So touch on that a little bit and why that's so special to golf and what the rest of the world could stand to learn from that one simple but powerful rule. It's the only sport I can think of that you police yourself. You know, you do have an official there, but it's more to interpret rules if you're unsure. Um, but it is a gentleman's game that you 
are expected to and do call penalties on yourself if nobody else sees it. Um, it's a game of, of integrity. And I think a lot of times in business and life, we see the quick way, you know, that may not be, whether it's illegal or not, may just not morally be correct, um, may not be what's in the best interest long term, but we see that kind of quick fix there. And by and large, 100% of the time, you're going to fail taking that route. Because if you're a person that wants to take the easy way to get where you are, that means you're not able to handle the adversity. You're not able to call the penalty on yourself and say, that's not right. Uh, And that's not a company that's going to stand long term. And like the Enrons, like the others, they made a quick buck, right? But what if they would have done it right and were still in business 10 years later? How much money did they lose by going the route of the quick dollar? And now they're all out of business. Some of them are in jail and whatnot. So that's one of the things that scares me about today. And I'm going to go into my full blown get off my lawn mode. You know, literally get off my lawn, kids. Um, we're almost, I wouldn't say legalizing it, but we're almost encouraging that behavior when we allow too big to fail. You know, the the automotive manufacturers, too big to fail. You know, some of those uh, securities and banks, you know, investment firms, too big to fail. Like Lehman Brothers was allowed to fail. They should all be allowed to fail, you know. I, I'm not too big to fail. You're not too big to fail. Like small business owners, there's no such thing as too big to fail. So a lot of those companies can just cheat rampantly, fudge their numbers, cut corners, you know, uh, Wells Fargo, create fake counts, have minimal accountability, and then the, you know, the CEO steps down amid scandal because, quote, that's what's in the best interest of the organization moving forward. But they get the golden parachute of like stock options, $50 million, and, you know, um, Lifetime use of a private jet, health insurance, you know, 401k, all of that. It's just absurd. And we're, if, you're, if you're not policing it, in a way, you're still encouraging it. Yeah. It, like everything, we, every conversation we have, we go off the rails and it happens. But, you know, one of, the, <laughs> one of the things you hear a lot, whether it's with, you know, a politician or with a, a businessman is, oh, well, he filed for bankruptcy three times or this business failed like it's a bad thing. Failure can be a good thing. You know, failure means you've tried and you failed and hopefully you've learned from that and grew. And nobody out there that's successful had just a clear road with no failures. I mean, Apple with Steve Jobs, how many times did he fail? Dude was fired from his own company. From his own company. I mean, failure is a good thing. Yeah. You learn from failure. You grow from it. As long as the failure is because of bad decisions, not because of illegal things or trying to take the quick road out of it. You know, if you're doing the best you can, you fail. You just stand up, you learn from it, and you move on. You know, that's that's something that I think most people are so scared of that they never succeed because they're scared of failure. Yeah, and it doesn't help today that like social media, basically you're seeing other people's social media or other brands and you don't, a lot of people who aren't quite as enlightened as you and I, don't realize all you're seeing is their highlight reel. And then you're going back in your mind and you're comparing their highlight reel to your blooper reel in life. You don't see their bloopers. So with that in mind, full disclosure program here, 
Tell us about a time that like reality smacked you in the face. Failure, you know, came full, you know, full circle in your life. You're doing well. And it could be golf. It could be business, whatever. And then you just got smacked in the face with a big piece of adversity. The two by four of adversity slapped you upside the head. And like, how did it happen? How'd you respond? And what was kind of the, uh, the teachable moment? The one that sticks out to me so plainly is, um, and I'll try to make this somewhat short, but uh, my wife and I decided, or I decided that I was going to leave the academy after being there and running it for six years. And I was going to go out on my own. And, and during this time, I'd met my wife and we decided we were going to move to Kansas. She got a job here and I was going to start my own business. And at the time, I knew um, a lot about the golf game. I knew a lot about the golf swing. I knew how to help golfers. What I didn't know at the time was how to run a business. You know, I was at a place that gave me a paycheck every week. Kind of based, regardless of the job I did that week, I got a paycheck. You were a house cat, not a Wolverine. (laughs) Exactly. So we move here. We have some money and savings. We move here in September. Well, you know, I'm used to working eight, nine, ten hours a day. They just provide the students. I work with them. All of a sudden, I've got to find my own students, right? I've got to start creating a business. I can't just stand out there and say, hey, come come to me because nobody's listening. So that savings that we had dried up really quickly, really quickly. Uh, and within five months, six months, I mean, you know, we were on my wife's paycheck and that's it. And we had a home that we still had to pay for in South Carolina. And, and um, whether you can call that a failure or not, it's just a life thing where times were very tough. And with the help of you, with the help of, of you know, the internet and research, with the help of a lot shout, of Shout out to me. Um, I, you know, I made sure not to listen to anything you said. Well, um, I suggested you get a cardboard sign standing on the corner by the university. We'll coach for food. Didn't work. Yeah. No, not one of your best decisions. But, um, you know, those were really hard times. But looking back on it now, those were great times. Yeah. Because I was put in a position of sink or swim. I had to figure out... How do, you know, and I think everyone listening to this kind of is in the same boat of I have this great idea or I have this great product, but what does that matter if nobody's going to listen? So how do I get the message out? And I think the product, whether we're talking about golf, whether we're talking about Under Armour, the product and then selling the product are two completely different things. Yeah. And be we think, oh, this is a great thing. I provide a great service. They'll just come. I'll sell a great t-shirt for $25. They'll just buy it. I call that field of dreams syndrome. If you build it, they will come. No, they won't. You have to actually freaking market it. And I think that's it's a it's an enlightening story because up until that time, you were a golf instructor, a professional golf instructor. And then you realized, whoa, 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 wait. I'm a marketer. And with whatever time I have left in my work week, I'm a professional golf instructor. And I, you know, that's going to go from 80% marketing, 20% instruction in the beginning. And then ideally the pendulum swings the other way. You become, you know, a destination where people come find you, which is what has happened. But a lot of people don't realize that fast enough that no matter what business you're in, what product or service you have, you're a marketer first. Then you're in the business of what you're in. And I think most people listening to this are listening because they are entrepreneurs like you and I. They better be. And everyone's got a little different formula or in a different point in their career. But we look so much at the product that we're building and selling 
and we don't look at, well, how do I get this product into people's minds and into their hands? Um, and that's the one thing that I think listening to you and your different podcasts and reading your books and, and the internet is you don't talk about the product because you don't know what product people have. Yeah. You're talking about whatever you have. Okay, it's got to be a good idea or it's got to be a good product. I mean, that's the first thing. You got to have something to sell. It's got to solve a problem. Yeah. It's, it's got to solve a problem. But if you have something that solves a problem, it's worthless if you can't get it to people. So you have to understand how do I market this and how do I market it efficiently? Because it's easy for me to say, well, I'm just going to spend $5,000 this month on Google ads and let everyone know or I'm going to. But is that the best way to spend your money? And I'm sure all of us, you know, we're not on an unlimited budget. We got to pay that credit card at the end of the month, unfortunately. Shout out to the federal government who is apparently. (laughs) Well, most of us have to pay our bills on time uh, and can't run a a trillion dollar debt. But not only do we have a certain amount to spend on marketing, and it's never enough, right? We always want more. But then how do we maximize that? And some of the things that you've taught me, um, you know, a newsletter, an email, they're free. Yeah. I don't have to pay for that. I mean, I might have to pay for the service to send it out or whatever, but that's almost nothing a month. But finding ways to get that in people's hands. And it's amazing how the more creative you get, the easier it is to sell. Yeah. You know, you can't do what everyone else does and then expect to get ahead of them. You've got to be smarter and work harder than everyone else and a lot of times it's it's a good thing don't be afraid to ask for help i did so that that you bring up another interesting subject um asking for help and too often people feel like they need to do it themselves or they want to go it alone that's why they went into business because they're kind of corporate refugees and there's nothing wrong with that i'm a corporate refugee you know um but and this is something that came up on my podcast last episode with uh, Michelle Newyar, who's a business consultant, great friend of mine. I gave the analogy of like, we're all, regardless of what business you're in, you're a professional athlete. You just don't know it. To quote my buddy Rob Bell, who you know, Dr. Rob Bell, we're all athletes. Our offices just look a little different. And I gave the example last episode of like UFC fighters, professional mixed martial artists. They don't have a coach. They have a team of coaches. They've got a nutritionist. They've got a a striking coach. They have a wrestling coach, like whatever branch of martial art they practice. Like maybe it might be Muay Thai or, you know, a jujitsu coach. They have a bunch of coaches. Talk to me about the world-class golfers you work with and just like who's on their team, who's coaching them and those different varieties, you know, their swing coach isn't also their massage therapist, right? Yeah. It's a great analogy that you're bringing up or great story that a golfer, a professional golfer has a swing coach, has a nutritionist, has a strength coach, has a mental coach. For some reason, when it comes to business, we don't want to admit we need help. It's I can do this. This is my thing. I, I, I'm i not going to, you know, I might ask this guy respect, but I'm not going to pay him for a service. I'll yeah. just, I'll try to hint around, see if he'll give me a little something. We're afraid to jump in and get our own swing coach, nutritionist, mental coach, you know. Yeah. We're afraid to build our brand with people that know more than us that can help us. We think that somehow we need to do it all on our own. That's the point of being an entrepreneur, right, is yeah. we do it. And, and all we're doing is making it harder on ourselves. We shouldn't be afraid to find people 
that specialize in certain things that we're weak at and ask them, what do I need to do better? It's not a sign of weakness. It's a sign of intelligence. Um, and going back to your MMA thing, you know, a great example of that is, is Conor McGregor, right? You're not a big UFC guy. I'm probably a little more, but you've heard of Conor McGregor. Everyone has. Yes. He's a marketer first. He's a showman first. And then he's a UFC fighter. Yeah. And, and that's the point right there is Conor McGregor is not the best fighter in the world. No. Okay. Conor McGregor lost his life. He's lost a, not a lot of fights. He's a good fighter, but he's lost some fights. Yeah. Conor McGregor is the richest mixed martial arts fighter yeah. by far if he's keeping his money. And and that's a great – you you might be the best, but if nobody knows who you are, you're not the richest. Yeah. You know, in the guy that's really, really good but nobody knows who he is – one or two losses, the UFC is getting rid of them because the UFC is a company based on making money. They don't care if you win or lose. Do you get people to watch? Novel concept. You mean they don't all get participation trophies? Exactly. You know, and it's it's the same with football. It's the same with the NBA. Business. At the end of the day, yeah. it's not about who wins. It's about who brings eyeballs to the TV and who gets people into the seats. And that's business, you know. It, that's it right there that you don't have to be the best. You have to make people think you're the best, and you have to make people want to see what you do. And you have to to do that. You have to surround yourself with the best. Like you don't need to know all the answers. You need to know all the people in your realm who know all the answers. You don't have to know it yourself. I think it's really interesting. Like some of the some of the first advice I got when I became a professional speaker, and I'll leave my mentor's name at the time out of this because he probably doesn't want this leaked to the public. He said, yeah, John, there are three audiences you really want to avoid. Doctors, lawyers, and coaches. Not business coaches, but like athletic coaches, college or professional coaches. I'm like, why is that? So-and-so. We'll call him Bob because that's his name. Just kidding. We'll call him Bob. I'm like, why is that, Bob? He's like, they're not coachable. Like Coaches, and I got to thinking about it, like a lot of coaches aren't coachable. Hmm. Everyone, the stereotype of lawyers is what? They steal money. They're slime balls. I was thinking they know everything. Oh, that's Yeah. <laughs> and doctors, the same thing. Like they are the foremost authority in their specific, you know, branch of medicine, you know, whatever that specialty is. So I get to thinking, I'm like, hmm. So for a while, I avoided those industries. And then I realized it's actually not true. It's a large percentage of the population in every industry when you're dealing with leaders, when you're dealing with business owners, doctors, lawyers, coaches, whoever. If you're used to being the person in the front of the room, you have a room full of whether it's your department, your team, your staff, your patients, your clients, whoever it is. You're used to people looking to you because you're the expert and expecting you to have all the answers. So, like, that's a lot of pressure, and you're expected to have all the answers. Some people do, some people don't, some people fake it, and some people, probably 1%, the top 1% realize they don't have all the answers, and they seek out the experts who do, and they surround themselves with what I like to call, like, that personal board of directors. People have all the answers because they're smart enough. They tend to be 40s, 50s, 60s, they have enough life experience to realize, you know what, I don't know everything and I'm secure enough in my identity to realize I can ask for help. 
and you know, if you're listening to this, you're not quite in that category. You need to find a way to get yourself there fast. You're not expected to have all the answers, but you have a responsibility to surround yourself with find the people who do. You want to improve your golf swing? Don't go on YouTube and look at a bunch of free videos. Call Josh. You want to improve your business? Don't go on YouTube, look at a bunch of free videos, hire a coach. Um, There's more information on my coaching services available at coachbrew.com. In the drop-down menu, click coaching. So much for uh, no commercials, huh? Yeah. So um, as we sort of go down this rabbit hole of seeking out experts and things, um, and you mentioned commercials, I'm going to blindside you with something. A word from another one of our sponsors. And that sponsor is you. This is an opportunity for you, the guest co-host, to provide a live read commercial about your business on air right now. Three, two, one. You've always got to pop these things up, right? You can't give me any uh, 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 heads up that this is coming. Cut, cut, cut. Take, <laughs> take two, take two. You're live in three, two, one, go. All right, I'll make this quick. Um, cut, cut, cut. You can't make it. You don't say you're going to make it quick. Just make it quick. Take three. Ready? You're live in three, two, one. Well, if I said I'm going to go a long time, people might get bored. So I'm telling them this will be quick. We're not editing this, by the way. <laughs> uh, JoshNomGolf.com. It's J-O-S-H-N-A-H-M. Golf, G-O-L-F.com. If you live in the Kansas, Missouri Oklahoma, Arkansas area, come on up for a lesson. Uh, you can find all the information there. For you that are avid golfers that live somewhere else, right? West Coast, East Coast, do video lessons. You film them. You email them to me. I get back to you within 48 hours of the drills, the synopsis of what's happening in your game. It's a great way if we can't meet live to help your golf game. So check all that out. We've also got merchandise and stuff because I love people wearing my stuff. It's like free advertising for me. It's like a big billboard. So there's stuff on the website there. Um, And if you just have any questions, whether it's from this podcast or about golf, you can find my email address on there. So let's get in touch. And what was the the website again? JoshNomGolf.com. And cut. We're not really cutting. I don't edit. I'm a big believer, Josh, in authenticity. That's a great job, by the way. When I say authenticity, what I mean is we do a real, raw, unfiltered, unedited podcast. And I just say it's for purposes of authenticity. It's really because I'm too cheap to hire someone to edit it and too lazy to edit it myself. So that was real. Um, I want to talk a little bit about your video service product, I should say. Um, and this is specifically for everyone who's in a service-heavy business. Um, you might think like you are tethered to your job because you're the, quote, service provider or your staff members, your professionals that are on your team are the service providers. And if they're not working, you're not making money and you are beholden to you know all the hours you have to put in. You would think golf instructor – would fall in that category because you're giving lessons face-to-face, live in a living color on a course or a range. Not necessarily the case. Josh found a great way to leverage his time by taking a service and productizing it. I think everyone is listening to this. The first thing that ought to be running through your head as you hear this is, hmm, how can I take – no, can I take? And the answer is yes, you can. 
how can I take my service and turn it into a product? A product that brings money in without you being physically there hour after hour, day after day. Talk to us a little bit about the genesis of that and how you kind of arrived that, you know what, I can pivot into this area and it's going to be a new revenue stream for me. And I can, more importantly, and I can leverage my freaking time. Yeah. I mean, that's a great thing about technology in my industry. It's how, how technology has grown. And, and I now have the ability, whether it's through video, through Skype, you know, to help people all over the world. Um, so in my business, at least, it's just not feasible or practical for some people to get a one-on-one lesson. You know, if you're up in Maine like you are, that's a very big financial burden to fly halfway across the country to get a lesson for a day or two and then fly back home. Not everyone can do that. What everyone can do is with your smartphone, film your swing, send it to me, and now I can do a video recap, six, seven minutes saying, John, here's kind of where you're at and this is what's causing problems. And and it's just about as good as in person. And we have the technology to do that now. Uh, it's opened up my business to new customers that I never would have had before, right? So we now have the ability to help anybody throughout the, the world, really, within 24, 48 hours to give them the product they want that wasn't available 10 years ago to them. It's two things with that. The first thing is, uh, if you're wondering, like, really? I, I don't need, like, sophisticated camera equipment. I just use my iPhone and have, like, you know, one of my golfing buddies or my kid or my wife or whoever record my swing. That's good enough. Yeah, actually, because your smartphone, Android or Apple, has the same quality technology as literally network television studio cameras and mics had about eight years ago. You got a whole television network in the palm of your hand. You can film yourself and the quality is not going to be compromised. It's not going to compromise the quality of the product you get back. Yeah. You know, when I started teaching, got 17 years ago now. You're old. I am. We, you know. We, I, had to go out and spend over $1,000 for a good camera that could actually capture a swing. And then I'd have to go to a computer and download this into a program I had to pay for that where then I could watch it. I mean, it was time-consuming and expensive. You know, and that camera that I spent over $1,000 for, $1,000, is not even close to as good as what an iPhone or an Android can pick up now. Yeah. I mean, it's it's crazy. Um Believe it or not, when I film students and I film every student when I'm giving a one-on-one lesson, it's from my phone or my iPad. They just don't make cameras any better than that. Yeah. You know, so it's just boom, right there. I've already got the program on the iPad. It's that simple. It's amazing. What and and if you if you're in a position where technology can be used to your advantage, take advantage of it. I mean, whatever business that is, take advantage of that because it's amazing what technology can do and how much quicker and easier it can make your life. So that was the first piece. Like, don't you should not underestimate the power you have in your pocket. It's a radio station. It's television studio. We're recording this on my smartphone using my podcasting app. It's it's got more memory than a desktop computer. And then, like, I just replaced my laptop recently, and the guy at the computer store is looking at. It, he's like, "Do you have an iPhone?" 
I said, yeah. He said, let me give you a sense of how antiquated your laptop is. I said, yeah. He said, there's like a thousand times more memory in your smartphone than there is in this laptop you've been pounding away at. Like, that's awesome. Okay, yeah, he convinced me to get a Mac, MacBook. But uh, so, like, don't underestimate the resources you have using a smartphone. You can use them from anywhere. You know, it's literally your entire business, the whole world's at your fingertips. The second piece I want to talk about with this is what percentage of your business, you know, how has this opened up, this productizing your service? How is this, what's this opened up for your business? Like what percentage of your business is now online versus live and in person? You don't have to reveal numbers, even though I know you're a multi-billionaire. I'm sitting in your uh, studio, your home studio in uh, the Nam Estate. Or do you call it Nam Manor? <laughs> it's Nam Manor. Okay, um, like Bruce Wayne's, Bruce Wayne Manor. Yeah. Gotcha. So how's that kind of open things up for you? Um, it's about 25% of my revenue. So basically take my income and, and take a quarter off if I wasn't doing this. Um, and it's probably 5 to 7% of my time. Can you repeat those numbers? 25% of my income, 5 to 7% of my time. You can do the same thing, folks. So just think about like productizing your service and using it to leverage your time. If you don't get anything else from this podcast, I want you to take that one little nugget of wisdom away. It's... It's a layup. It is so easy. You're just not you're just not doing it, you know? And anyone can do it. I know you're listening to the Coach Brew podcast right now, but I've got an offer you can't refuse. Head over to coachbrew.com and download yourself a free issue of Coach Brew's prestigious $49 a month, yesterday's underdog newsletter. It's complimentary when you subscribe to his list. It'll show you ways to double your results. So head on over to coachbrew.com now. What are you waiting for? You know it's a good idea. Go on now. Uh, I want to go down another rabbit hole, Josh. Um, I'm wondering why I haven't gotten a golf lesson from you while I'm here. There's a very, very easy answer for that. You haven't paid for one yet. Okay. Okay. I have to pay for coaching? Is that the way it works? Yes. You, you Especially you have to pay. I mean, as hard as this job's going to be, you might be charged extra. <laughs> it's hazard pay. Yeah, I am a, a, a world-class golfer unbeknownst to you i had a hole in one this summer did you really mini golf i I had a hole in one this summer in mini golf well yeah so (laughs) i hit the ball under the windmill perfectly timed so it didn't hit the actual windmill through the clown's mouth around the loop to loop boom straight into the hole I was going to send you a video of that so you could critique my putting, but I didn't want to pay for that. <laughs> so uh, in, in all seriousness, that, that's the big idea. It's the big takeaway from the, from the podcast today is productizing your service, how you can do that, and just look at the leverage. 25% of his income via 5 to 7% of his time. Um I have a couple questions for you, rapid fire, kind of tangential questions based on my observations of, um, we'll call it Midwest sensibility. Would you say there's such a thing as like you, I mean, you're a very worldly man who's, who's lived in Carson City, Nevada, or is it Nevada? It's Nevada. 
Okay. Shout out to Brian McCants. It's Nevada. Um, you've lived in Carson City. You've lived in the Carolinas. Uh, you now are living in the Lawrence, Kansas area. Would you say there is Midwestern sensibility you don't see elsewhere? And you've also traveled the world. Yeah, it's well, no matter where you live, there's a, a vibe, right? Um, grew up on the West Coast, California, then Nevada. Um, very fast paced. Nobody wants to talk to you. Nobody has time to talk to you. Head down. Eat, eat a lot of kale. Eat a lot of, well, no, <laughs> we did not eat kale. Um, very fast paced. Um, living in the Carolinas, much slower paced. People are much more, I don't want to say friendly, people on the West Coast, but more interested without knowing you in your life story. And, and in the Midwest, yeah, there's a Midwest sensibility. Um, you know, I don't know what that sensibility is because I'm here, but there is a sensibility here for sure. Everybody's got their crosses to bear. Your neighbors have you. Uh, I know what I'm referring to is I'm comparing like the Puritan work ethic of New England to the Midwestern sensibility of, say, Kansas. And here's where I'm going with that. It's so one thing I've noticed in my travels with you here this week. You um, do not your your part of the country is not struck with the same ailment or mental illness that we have in New England. I don't know where you're going with this, but continue. I'm following you so far. Uh, I don't know if you've heard of the expression PCD. Nope. Not PCP, PCD. Premature Christmas decorating. So, and this is one of my pet peeves. Because there's a time and a place for everything. And I think this is symptomatic of our culture. Is we're accelerating the curve on everything. Unnecessarily. And this has never been more evident to me than Labor Day weekend when I was shopping at Lowe's. I saw the uh, store manager putting Christmas decorations out on Labor Day. I looked at the guy. I'm like, are you serious? He looks at me. He goes, sighs, shakes his head. He's like, yeah, I know. I'm like, what are you doing? It's number one. Labor Day weekend isn't even over. It's not even Halloween. Like, what? Come on. He said, we have to. Home Depot puts theirs out next week. We got to beat them to the punch. And that's just symptomatic of a lot of problems in this country. But what I'm talking specifically about is people decorating their homes. I can't tell you how many of my neighbors had their Christmas lights out before Halloween. It's staggering. Never mind before Thanksgiving. We drive around Lawrence, Kansas, Kansas City, you know, this whole general area, and I do not see a society uh, suffering from PCD. Is, am I missing something? What's the story here? I don't know if this is a Midwest thing or not, you know, but, but Christmas decorations should not and cannot go up until Thanksgiving weekends. You know, it, it is kind of insulting to Thanksgiving, really. It's like we're just yeah. looking right past Thanksgiving, straight into Christmas. Decorations are meant to be put up the weekend you get off for Thanksgiving. That's when the decorations go up. And it's not just insulting to Thanksgiving. Like, that's a whole holiday founded on the whole concept of gratitude. So what are you really grateful for if you're decorating, if you're skipping that holiday, skipping Halloween and decorating like in September? 
But when is the appropriate time to decorate is the question. And the correct answer is the weekend of Thanksgiving. So like after Thanksgiving meal or can you decorate before the meal? Like do you wait till next day? What's the story? No, it's after Thanksgiving, right? So Thanksgiving's always on Thursday. Everyone gets Thursday, Friday, and then the weekend off. So sometime after the meal on Thursday up until Sunday night is the appropriate time to first start decorating. If you want to wait a week or two after that, that's fine. But the first time you can do it is after Thanksgiving. I would love to petition our government. The government would find a way to screw that up. But I'd love to petition the government for, like, we overregulate a lot of things. That's something that needs their attention. Like, it's a cry for help if you're decorating before Thanksgiving. You know, Black Friday shopping has even moved up. You know, Cyber Monday, Black Friday, everything's accelerated. It's kind of scary. So um, while we're talking about the holidays, I think there's certain etiquette that, that should take place. Uh, what is your personal stance on inflatable lawn decorations? You know, we're solving the world's problems here, folks. So uh, follow me here, okay? This might get a little convoluted. I will never in a million years have an inflatable lawn decoration on my lawn. Ever. Why? Ever. They're horrible. They're tacky. They're awful. They're crazy. But I love them. I want everyone else to do it. If nothing else, just so it can mock how crazy and unrealistic and stupid they are on their lawn. I will never do it, but I love them. I want to see the guy down the road. Now, that being said, I don't want it at my neighbor's house either. No. Uh, it's property it, it, value integrity we need to maintain. Down the road, though. Yep. Around the corner, I want to see that big inflatable Christmas dragon. Now, why a dragon's there for Christmas, I don't know. No. But the big inflatable one that's wings go up and down. He's breathing fire. There's like it's set to music that ain't Christmas carols, and it lights up. When did a dragon become a part of Christmas? But I love it. I want to see that. Now, one of the things you won't be able to this almost like Christmas culturally appropriating Chinese New Year, right? <laughs> it's a good point. So I don't want it anywhere within two or three homes of me. But everyone else, I want them to do it, and I want it to be as tacky as humanly possible. So I think this is this all feeds into the illness. I think people who um, practice PCD, premature Christmas decorating, but also do the inflatable lawn decorations and ornaments uh, are egomaniacs. Because it's not like a nice little 18-inch uh, tall inflatable stocking that's on your patio. It's like a 17-foot tall Frosty the Snowman that's in the middle of your front yard you have spotlights around it. It's set to music. That just screams, look at me, look at me, look how important I am and my yard is. It's a desperate cry for attention. And that's the sequel that needs to be made to the Griswold's Christmas, right? Is really digging deep of what is wrong with this man that so desperately needs 20 million lights up on his house why isn't he getting the attention that he needs? You know, is it, is his wife not paying attention to him? What was he doing? Clark had a bad job and a bad boss. I think that was a coping mechanism for him. But the, you know, these inflatable lawn decorations just make me make me want to get like one of those uh, blow dart guns and dress up like a ninja and just ride around covertly under a cover of night and just take them out. Isn't there a big part of you, though, that loves them? 
There is a sick, sick part of me that loves them, and here's why. Where I grew up. Does it make you feel better about yourself because you don't have it? Yeah, it's kind of like the Kardashians, the TV show. Like, when I need to feel better about myself, like, I don't, like, I'll watch that show. And I think, like, everyone should watch that show for, like, 10, 15 minutes just to feel better about their own lives. You know, I think seeing these lawn decorations is just another vehicle to that. But what I, you know, what I find really interesting is it's like people watching because it's human behavior on display. Where I grew up in Pennsylvania, uh, there's a person that lived not in my neighborhood, like a couple neighborhood's over, but just went crazy with ho- you know um, holiday decorating, and it was to the point where he like tried to top what he did the previous year the next year. And I think the uh, the showstopper was when he installed a miniature. I'm not making this up. I could bring my mother on the podcast to fact check this. This dude installed a miniature Ferris wheel in his front yard that was generator. You couldn't just plug it into like the outlet in the front porch. It was generator operated Ferris wheel that had Jesus, Mary, Joseph, Santa, Mrs. Claus, Frosty, like the true Christmas characters, and then like the commercialized Christmas characters on this Ferris wheel and is set to like like carnival music. No. It's crazy. I was, and I, and as hideous as it was, I loved it for like the kind of like the voyeuristic people watching part of it all. You you'll remember it forever, right? Oh god, yeah. I was not a history major in in college. Um I don't believe in Jesus's day they had Ferris wheels. Is that a fair assessment or generators? I'm not even sure they had music. So we talk about the Ferris wheel. We talk about dragon. Like we're taking a lot of liberties of what Christmas decorations are. You know, it can't just be candy canes now and reindeer because you have to be different, right? Yeah. Everyone's got the candy canes or the reindeer and the Christmas lights. So let me get a Ferris wheel and call it Christmas. So, uh, full disclosure, the one sort of, uh, appropriated, inappropriate, hideous Christmas decoration we have at the House of Brew is um, my wife, knowing Mrs. Coach Brew, knowing that I'm a huge sports fan and my background, decided to get me a bobblehead crash set. So if you don't know what a crash is, it's like uh, like the, the manger scene. So I have a Jesus, Mary, Joseph, and the donkey bobblehead Christmas scene, individual little characters. And it's pretty cool, I have to admit. I'll post a video of it when we uh, decorate after Thanksgiving. So this brings up, you know, like the intersection of sports, business. Now we're on the holidays. But let's loop this back to business and why people really tuned in. Office party behavior at the holidays. Things to do, things to not do. We are your go-to source for tips so you can manage the holidays without losing your job or losing your cool. What's the number one holiday office party tip that you would recommend to people? Be invisible. Be invisible. It is not the time at an office Christmas party to let loose and be the life of the party. 
the life of the party's fun for about two hours. And then if you're not fired for being the life of the party, you've got to live with that for the next 365 days. Be the guy in the corner that just says hello. If you've got a drink in your hand, make it last all night. You know, it it, it ties back to your Christmas decorations, right? Yep. Don't be the guy with the big inflatable drink. It's great to look at it. Don't put it in your yard. Yeah. Okay. Everyone thinks it's funny to see the guy up on the table dancing, shit face drunk at the Christmas party. Don't be that guy. Because it is funny till the next morning when he's got to go in the boss's office for acting like an ass. Yeah, you might be drunk and not remember it, but there are a lot of sober people you work for who are sober and will remember it. It ain't Vegas. What happens there doesn't stay there. What happens there, that crap gets posted on YouTube, Instagram, Facebook Live, and you know, in your HR file too. Um, so it brings up another great point. You mentioned like having... Real quick. Yeah. To, uh, quote one of the greatest movies ever, Rounders, right? You've yep. seen Rounders? Oh, yeah. You know, if you can't tell who the ass is at the Christmas party within the first 30 minutes, that's because you are the ass. Yeah. Yeah, if you can't spot the mark, it's because you are the mark. So, uh, you know, like make the drink last all night. Here, here's a great suggestion from yours, Brulee. I call it the two-link Dremit. The two-link Dremit. If you have more than two drinks, you're probably going to start slurring your words and saying them wrong. So, like, stick to the two-link Dremit, right? So a great way to do that is your first drink, water. Your second drink, a cocktail. Sip it, right? You don't need to be doing keg stands at the Christmas party and then uh, photocopying your ass you know, on the copy machine in the office. Uh, your, your third drink, water. Fourth drink, a cocktail. And that you know, ought to get you through the four-hour Christmas party, right? Fifth drink, water. Go home with whoever you came with. End of conversation. Any, any other uh, nuances to this, Josh, no, so that people don't lose their jobs or their minds? It, it's like, and I can't remember the movie I'm thinking of, but it's how people interpret things, right? So you're the guy getting drunk, and you're thinking, man, all these people I work with, you know, on a daily basis, we got the tie and the coat and ties on, and everyone's, they're going to see how fun I am. And, you know, I'm really showing them a good time. And the next day, they're going to come by and be like, oh, I didn't know you were so exciting and so much fun. From their view, they're looking at going, God, I know that guy was an alcoholic. Like, he can't hold his alcohol. Why is he acting like an So don't be the idiot in the corner getting drunk, making a fool out of himself. Um, leave that for somebody else. And here's why. You know, we tie all these tangents and rabbit holes we go down back into business in a, uh, I dare say, mad scientist genius sort of way here on the Coach Brew podcast, uh, the new and improved Coach Brew podcast. So what I think you should do is, and this is especially pertinent and relevant for those of you listening who uh, work at a company and didn't get a Christmas bonus, uh, didn't get a raise last year, maybe didn't even get a cost of living adjustment, and you're, oh, dare I say, a little disenfranchised, disgruntled, and... uh, disapproving of that. That's a lot of disses. Uh, Disapproving of that. Well, here's a way you can get a raise that you might not even have to claim. Am I condoning this? No. Am I suggesting it? No. It's merely an observation based on experience. 
don't be the guy in the corner who gets so drunk he wears his tie as a headband and starts licking directly from the chocolate fountain or doing karaoke. You don't want to be – nobody likes karaoke guy, right, Josh? Nobody likes karaoke guy. Yeah. Um, you might think you're good at karaoke. You're not, and that will be glaringly apparent to everyone but you if you're a hammer drunk at the Christmas party doing karaoke. So what you want to be is the guy or girl – in the corner, documenting karaoke. What do I mean by documenting, Josh? Well, you you film it, right? You know, the guy doing karaoke, making a fool of himself. You don't want to be the one that's getting filmed doing it. You want to be the one that's filming the guy doing it. Notice we're like the guy doing karaoke. It's karaoke guys. Never karaoke girl. No, they all sound better. Yeah, they sound good. Like, they, they... Almost, they're like channeling their inner Carrie Underwear or whatever her name is, Carrie, Carrie, Carrie Underwood. Yeah, they're channeling their inner rock star, their inner Taylor Swift. Guys just act a fool. So what you want to do is you want to document this with that uh, camera studio in your pocket known as your iPhone, and um, you'll have some leverage the day after when they have a screaming headache. And, hey, maybe it was your boss. You never know, but that could be uh, it could be a nice way to leverage. You know, Josh mentioned it, and this is how we tie things back into business. Twenty five percent of his revenue came from five to seven percent of his efforts. I'm not sure I understand. Do we? Siri doesn't understand. Were we asking her a question? I don't think so. I'm not sure. She's British. I gave Siri a British voice. Um. A male British voice, unlike Keely, the uh, my British voiceover babe. <laughs> but uh, you want to be able to exert that fundraising leverage with uh, people who acted foolishly, and you have that on camera from the party. Twenty five percent of his revenue came from five to seven percent of his time doing video analysis of people's swings. Uh, imagine some of your revenue could come from not necessarily video analysis, but video possession of other people's behavior, which gets documented at a Christmas party. Am I suggesting it? No. Am I condoning it? No. Consult with a lawyer or attorney uh, in regards to use of said footage. Uh, Josh, closing tips for people who um, are listening to this and are either thinking like, you know, um, there's got to be a way I could productize my service or um, maybe I'm not – putting full priority on being a marketer first and then service provider, professional, insert industry here, uh, professional second. Um, What's the tip for you to kind of overcome the resistance and um, act? And maybe acting on that involves getting help Uh, because I think, uh, you know, there are a lot of people out there who – Need help but are afraid to ask. They're the guy or girl in front of the room in their organization who are expected to have the answers. You've got to see that with with golfers. What's the resistance in people uh, not coming to you who should or not seeing it through uh, and uh, should do that? Because it's really between the ears, isn't it? Yeah, it's all about people's attitude, right? And people, we all know the guy that knows everything it's a guy again you know it's like this is why the female species is far more enlightened it's always a guy we all know the person that knows everything 
I get the guy or girl that comes for a golf lesson and then tells me for 20 minutes how good they are or what they're doing wrong. So you're going to tell me what you're doing wrong, but paying me to tell you. Then it you makes know what no you're sense. doing wrong. Couldn't you have fixed it yourself? Exactly. Why do you need me? Exactly. I'm sure you get it all the time in your business. You get the guy that says, I'm interested in your service for my business and then goes on for 20 minutes to tell you how good their product or service is. Well, what do you need my help for then? I get the guy. Here's 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 what I get, and he usually is a guy uh, who uh, just drops things on their staff or their team, like blindsides them, and they never know what to expect. At, like the weekly staff meeting, and I'm like, why do you do that? People don't like to be thrown curveballs. They don't like to be blindsided. You know, you think about like getting punched. It's the shots that hurt the most, and the ones you don't see coming. You know, like people want transparency and they want communication. Oh, no, no. I think they like it. You know, it keeps them on their toes. Meanwhile, I'll go talk to those people. They freaking hate it. It's the one bone of contention they have with their leader. So, yeah. Yeah. So whenever you're starting a business or in the middle of running a business, you have to be self-aware enough to take inventory of what do I do great and what do I need help on? And don't be afraid to ask help on the things you don't do well. Um, Somebody listening to this right now is an entrepreneur or wants to become an entrepreneur. They're starting a business and there's something or some things they do in their business really well. And there's one or two or three things that are keeping them from being really successful. And if you don't know what it is or you're too scared to ask for help, you're always going to be stuck in that same position. You know, the reason that I'm on this podcast is because I've asked you for help on my business. I was a golf coach. I've always been a golf coach. You just made it sound like I bribed people. Like, I'll put you on my podcast if you hire me to help you. There's no – this is not the Ukraine. There's no quid pro quo. Shout out to Joe Biden's son and Donald Trump. I am not saying that. You did force me to come on this thing. Um But understand what your limitations and your faults are and talk to people that are better than that at you. Because at the end of the day, you don't get a trophy for doing it all yourself. You know, there's no medal for doing it all yourself. The trophy is being successful, whatever your definition of success is. And if it's money, that's the the only trophy you get. That's how you keep score. It doesn't matter how you got there as long as you get there. So talk to people that know more than you do about certain things. Um, and, and just for a quick, very brief example, when I first started talking with coach brew, I didn't know anything about marketing. You know, the idea of I'm, I'm going to have a newsletter out, you know, well now I've got a newsletter with 10,000 people on it. I didn't know what a newsletter was except things that clog up my inbox, right? Google ads, um, Facebook and Instagram ads, you know, doing, you know, little clips like this podcast, these are all things that I didn't know. And if I didn't ask, I'd still be sitting there saying, why well, aren't I busier? It's not my fault. I guess people just aren't looking for golf lessons. It's the economy. It's the weather. It's not. You know? Everybody loves to blame the economy. So uh, I, I think that the person who thinks they don't need help, the person that thinks they, they've got it all under control, um, that's not an entrepreneur. Well, there's another word for that. It's an entrepreneur. It's an entrepreneur, not preneur, because you know what you're full of. And, and like, I'll be the first to admit, I don't think I have all the answers. I'm not an entrepreneur. 
I have a team of coaches that I you know, hire some of whom are on retainer that help me with different things. Josh has people who help him with different things. He doesn't do the Google ads himself. He is a Google ad expert. Yeah. So uh, who are the experts that you need to bring onto your team is the big question. And um, I want to remind people, this is an interactive podcast. So you can, um, you can, Leave a voicemail through the podcast app or just go to coachbrew.com, click podcast. It'll take you right to my podcast page. And all you have to do is enable your microphone on your computer or phone to allow you to leave uh, a message with feedback, questions, comments. Comment we got uh, from last week's episode was from uh, the great John Rennie, author and uh, CEO of uh, a fast-rising, fast-rising manufacturing firm in eastern north carolina john rennie wanted to know by the way you should go to i have the what's what's the title of his book i have the watch.com i always get that confused with have the watch it's i have the watch.com check out his book uh i wrote the forward to it it's a great book you're gonna love it um but john rennie left a message uh which i'm gonna play after this and um then we'll react to that and you can do the same. You can leave that message. We love feedback. We thrive on it. This is John Rennie calling from North Carolina. My only question to you is how soon can we get Coach Morgan Randall on your show? So the question from John Rennie is a very good one. How soon can we get Coach Morgan Randall on the podcast, um, Josh, you have you met Coach Randall? I have, and, and based on what you know about him, his idiosyncrasies and busy schedule, when do you think we could expect me to be able to book him as a guest? That's a it's a tough question. My my first response is probably seven to ten years when he gets out on parole. Because he's a crazy man that's got to be in jail soon. I'm not sure he's the type of person you want on your podcast. Is it censored? Well, he's been on, you know, this is clean. It's not labeled explicit content on iTunes. He's been on a couple of podcasts. He was on uh, Dan Tudor's podcast. He's on Jason Oates' Whistling a Clipboard podcast a couple of times. Um, I just, I don't, so John Rennie, to answer your question, I don't think Coach Randall is doing media appearances currently at this time. It's recruiting season. And uh, being a small college coach with a very limited budget and very limited time, you know, he's scouring primarily the eastern seaboard uh, looking for the next, you know, all-star who has slipped through the cracks and wasn't offered an athletic scholarship somewhere. Um, that, and I'm just not quite sure what he would say if I put a microphone up to him, uh, but I'll take that under advisement and we will consider inviting coach Randall to join the podcast. Uh, or you could just invite him to join your podcast and I'll see how that goes. And, you know, maybe I think he would be a good topic for your newsletter and I'll see how that goes before I make any firm commitments to that so thank you for the question anyone else has questions feel free to uh utilize the voicemail message resource in the app 
And uh, we're, we're going to wrap this thing up. I want to thank Josh Nam for uh, coming on the podcast today and thank him and his lovely wife, Katie, for their hospitality during my time in Lawrence. Um, if you have not been to a Kansas University men's basketball game or toured uh, Allen Fieldhouse, that's must-see TV. You don't know what you're missing. You got you to check it out. Pretty sure Josh and his wife would be happy to host you in their home, uh, wine you and dine you and take you out on the town like they did with me. And, yeah, just reach out to them at joshnamgolf.com. I'll put the link in the show notes, but it's Josh, N-A-H-M, golf.com. Josh, thanks for coming on the show. How would you – I know what I forgot to ask you. One more thing. And it, re- it revolves around forgetting to ask people things. I ask all my guests, you, you know, um, you, first of all, you're my favorite guest, the best guest I've ever had, but I say that about all my guests. This time I really mean it. Um, final question is always, what did I forget to ask you? What was the question that I should have asked you and didn't, and you're disappointed? Like, Brubaker, really, you missed that one? Why didn't you ask me that? You know, honestly, John um – there's just too many to list. As I leave it to you to publicly shame me, yes. This was a uh, horrible podcast and, and a complete waste of time. Uh, and I thought your questions were just convoluted and, 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 and stupid, to be Thank honest you. with you. Um, but that being said, they're the most convoluted, stupid questions I've ever been asked. And for that, you were amazing. So I didn't forget to ask you anything? No. Okay. So... Great. Um, What a perfect place to end this thing. Folks, um, I'll just let you listen to uh, the outro, the the closing comments. And uh, thank you, Keely, the British voiceover babe, for uh, shedding light on an important issue, which you're all about to hear about momentarily. Thank you. Hey, Brew, I know you said you don't want an outro at the end of the show. But how else are you going to tell people to subscribe, share, rate, and review the podcast? Uh, I could just go ahead and tell them myself, but I'm not. What? Why not? I'm not going to tell people what to do. If they want to subscribe, share, rate, and review, that's, that's their call. But those metrics are important. Actually, Coach Brew has a valid point. Those metrics don't mean a damn thing. The internet is littered with fake reviews, purchased followers and subscribers. What matters is quality, not quantity. Thank you, Keely. Look at me. I love his show. So without being asked, I subscribed, reviewed it and recommended it to my colleagues. Besides, that isn't even what he wants listeners to do anyway. He wants them to go to coachbrew.com and join his email list so they can get a complimentary copy of his prestigious $49 a month Yesterday's Underdog newsletter. And in doing so, they'll be subscribed to The Daily Brew, which is his free e-news. God, I love that thing. Whatever. I give up. Good. I give your decision five stars.